Welcome to the Mac Emerge Podcast. My name is Teresa Chan, and with me I have Kevin Dom, Brendan Trotter, and Joanna Dida, and we'll be your podcast team. Our goal is to connect all the McMaster affiliated emergency physicians so we all get to know each other a little better. We have so much great talent and expertise in this region. We want to highlight it into one regional podcast. Each podcast features one invited guest to speak about their expertise or interests. Additionally, we will feature external speakers who have delivered regional rounds at one of our teaching sites. And don't forget about the residents. We'll be featuring stories about our residents and what they've been up to as well. All right, are you ready? Let's get started with this month's episode. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning into our podcast. We're finally getting into the FOMED game, eh? Hey, T-Chan. What's uh, FOMED anyway? Well, I'm glad you asked. FOMED is Free Open Access Medical Education. It's largely a movement that was started by Mike Cadogan in Australia and has spread around the world. The idea is that medical education should probably have no paywalls blocking you from access. And so a bunch of educators have actually devoted their time to create free and open access blogs and podcasts to share with the world. That's super neat. And so we're doing this for Mac Emerge. Isn't there a lot of FOMED stuff uh, out there? There sure is. There's awesome stuff like Life in the Fast Lane, Canadian, MCRIT, Emergency Medicine Cases. But at the end of the day, we started thinking around here that we were missing something, something that would connect our emergency physicians from across the region that all work within the McMaster Emergency Medicine family. And so we thought maybe we could start a podcast that could connect us all. Wow, that sounds like a great idea. So we're going to be focusing on some of the local talent, eh? Absolutely. We're going to feature people from all over the region too, not just Hamilton. We're going to make sure we get out to Niagara, interview some people in Brampton. We're really going to try to make this a regional podcast. And don't forget the residents. We are going to highlight some Mac emergency residents who have specific areas of interest of their own. That sounds amazing. We should also talk about life outside of medicine. Maybe something like... uh, Life in the slow lane. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's exactly right, Kevin. We're going to try to incorporate aspects of all parts of life for the emergency physician. So, without further ado, let's get on with our first segment. Welcome, everyone. This is Teresa Chan, and I'm going to be your host for today's McMaster Emergency Medicine Podcast. Today... I have the pleasure of introducing you to our next topic review, Pediatric Emergency Medicine Pearls, PEM Pearls, with Anthony Crocco and Brendan Trotter. Whether you work in a community or academic eMERGE, we know these will be useful to you when you treat those little patients coming through your emergency department doors. So let's go ahead and get started. Hello, everybody. I'm Brendan Trotter. I'm here with Anthony Caracco. Uh, he's an associate professor uh, here at McMaster and the head of emergency medicine here at the McMaster Children's Hospital. And he's going to uh, talk to us about some pediatric pearls and some of the other things that he thinks, uh, especially those of us that are relegated to the adult world entirely, might find useful these days. Well, thanks for inviting me to do this. Yeah, I, I'd say that it's uh, there's a few things that I've learned over the years about pediatrics that I think may be a little bit different than what you guys see with your adult patients. But I know as general emergency physicians, you see everything that comes through the door, which includes kids. And it's really the, the play between kids and, and parents. And it's often the parents bringing kids in as opposed to the kids initiating that contact. By and large, most kids 
would do anything to avoid the emergency department. And so it's usually the parents that are initiating that contact. And it's interesting, over the years, I've had a bit of a transition in my own uh, perspective on this. Um, very early on in my training, I sort of felt that uh, my definition of emergency, which was you have something life-threatening and therefore you need to be in my department, my emergency department, and that's what the sign says, that was kind of my definition of emergency, was something that was going to kill you in, in the near future. And over time, what I've come to realize is that it actually matters less what my definition of emergency is and it matters more um, what the parent's definition of emergency is. And for me, it's been a bit of a focus in how I communicate with families uh, because often the families may have um, an emergency that they haven't defined well for themselves and are having a hard time articulating uh, and it's up to us then to tease that out. So it's not just about making sure that someone's asthma is okay, it's making sure that the parents understand uh, why they're here and what they're worried about and that I understand what they're worried about and that we address those things because otherwise they'll be back with that understanding not having been met yet. And I find the two large drivers um, of that and, and the reasons kids come to emerge is often revolves around Actually, with the one primary driver would be just fear, and so the parents are afraid, and they're often afraid because of a couple things, but it's usually three things that we see. One is lack of information, um, and then two is lack of control, uh, and three is emotional investment. And so the emotional investment is actually the best part of this, and I think that what's nicest about kids is that 99% of the time, we have a disposition if they're going home, which I know is different in your adult world where sometimes you get adults come in and they don't need to be admitted, but now they can't go back home and she's sort of stuck in this nebulous, I don't know where to put, you know, where you can safely go. Thankfully, kids get to go home to their families 99% of the time. And so, uh, you know, the caring aspect of this, I can, I can kind of relate to more so now that I have my own little guy. The the aspect of the information, I think it's not one of, of stupidity, but it's one of ignorance. And I think it's easy to vilify parents who bring their kids where we deem it to be unnecessary. I think more important is for us to try and gain the parents' perspective as to why they're here. And it's often because of lack of information. There's something that they don't know, they don't understand. They're here because they're worried. And so for us, uh, you know, and, and how many times, you know, you, you see somebody and they say, oh, I looked up on Google and this is, you know, they told me to come in. And it's interesting because when you go and do a Google search as you would do if you were a parent and you were looking for that information, a lot of the information that you get from the internet is actually quite worrisome and, and wouldn't necessarily alleviate your fears, but actually stoke the flames. And so, uh, you know, realizing that parents may not have the medical information to make um, a decision at home, realizing that they're getting misinformation likely from the internet and that they have a vested interest in their child who they love above all things else. Um, it becomes then easy to understand why somebody might come to the emergency department. And then the sort of third part of it for me is a, a lack of control. And that's for me where um, I think we have a role not just to you know, deal with whatever the imminent medical emergency is um, and deal with whatever information emergency there is, but also to empower the parents as best we can um, so that they're left leaving with information, with reassurance, and with a plan. And part of that for me is making sure that we direct them to appropriate websites or appropriate information. So a general Google search is likely to yield you, um, you know, quite a lot of misinformation or poorly understood information. But you know, moving parents towards like the Canadian Pediatric Society website for parents' information at least puts one level of quality control on that interaction. Uh, other things for me that I, I stress with parents is, is the idea of when you're leaving the emergency department, understanding what to expect, 
understanding when you should go see your primary care physician and understanding the third tier of that, which is when to come back to emergency. And I think if we don't do that and don't lay that out for families, if anything changes when they leave, they're going to be back in the emergency department. And so trying to clarify with families, uh, for instance, if a child has a viral infection and is otherwise well, that it's normal as part of the body's immune response fighting a viral infection that your child can develop a fever that that's a normal response to infection, and this is what we would, would suggest in terms of managing that child's comfort around that. Child not getting better usually falls for me under the category of following up with a primary care physician. And so articulating that, if your child is not better in three to five days or whatever time period it is based on the complaint, uh, you know, articulating, that would be a good time to go back and see your family doctor. Uh, it's not necessarily a reason to come to the emergency department um, if you deem that to be medically appropriate. And then having a third tier of here are some reasons to come back to the emergency department. And here at McMaster in the last little bit we've come up with a discharge paper that articulates some of those more um, specific reasons for parents to come back to the emergency department, which a lot of them I've been, I've been preaching for years about you know, when should parents come back to the emergency department and historically and pretty much any resident and medical student uh, who's worked with me has heard of my four horsemen of the apocalypse because one of these four things is likely to precede death uh, in almost all cases of uh, pediatric illness. Uh, but for me, I, the things that I used to articulate now are nicely written on our discharge handout, which I spend a few minutes chatting about. Um, so number one, just change in mentation, you know, um, becoming more persistently lethargic or persistently irritable that's not got, you know, that doesn't improve with uh, comfort medicines like ibuprofen or acetaminophen, um, change in respiration, so breathing faster, breathing heavier, uh, change in hydration, so drinking less, uh, having increased outputs where they can't keep up with that, or vomiting and not able to tolerate oral fluids. And then the last is just increased concern. Do you have a good kind of rule of thumb you use for urine output in kids? Yeah, it, it, it's a good question. You know, like, and so for me, it's uh, somewhere between no urine output and uh, full urine output is is the right answer. Um, for me, you know, if someone's doing half the normal of wet diapers, that's certainly for me like a benchmark to say you need to be pushing fluid more. Uh, and if you're starting to lose ground from there, and you know, so no urine output, it really depends on the child because some kids. Uh, you know, they, can, they pee every two or three hours and we're changing diapers all the time. And so going 12, 18 hours is actually fairly significant for that child. So, you know, I, I, it's, it's a more, I don't like to put a hard number on it because it actually changes child to child and it's easy then just to sort of say, okay, well, then we're going to use 18 hours or 12 hours. Um, but I think the trend that sort of over time you start to notice the diapers are getting drier and drier. Uh, we'd want to see that kid earlier. And part of it for me is I, you know, I don't want people coming to the emergency department if they don't have an emergency by their definition, um, not necessarily by mine, but by their definition, if there's not an emergency, I don't want them coming back to see us. Having said that, I, if there is a reason for them to come back to the emergency department, I want them back sooner than later. And I think dehydration for me is a good example of that. If someone's on the, on the road to severe dehydration, it's a lot more easy for us to intervene uh, earlier in that process at the moderate level where, you know, the child's maybe not as acidotic and not as dehydrated, we can get that ship turned around. Uh, and if we do have to go with an IV at the moderate stage because of vomiting we can't control, because of outputs that we can't keep up with, uh, or whatever reason, it's a lot easier to put an IV in in a kid who's only moderately dehydrated versus severely dehydrated where now they're so shut down, IVs aren't working and we're having to do um, something a bit more advanced. So. My philosophy with this, and I think 
part of this is because I've gotten older and, and my, as my adrenals start to wax and wane and, my, and limit my ability to produce adrenaline and, and get upset about things, partly because I'm on Pranolol, partly because I'm a parent, you know, partly because I'm an administrator, I'm starting to become a lot more patient with families just in terms of why they might show up to the emergency department and leaving the door open for them to come back that I would rather 10 kids come back that we can reassure and send home than I'd rather that than one kid that the parents feel that they shouldn't come back to the emergency department. They keep that kid too long and we miss an opportunity to reverse a, a process. So um, I think that last you know reason when we talk about the four horsemen, you know, four things that, that we want to warn parents about, hydration, mentation, respiration, concern, it really matters to me less about why a parent is worried. It's just that they are worried. Because I don't know this child from anybody else on the planet. Uh, if they're worried their child looks more sick, in my mind, that's that's enough for me to come and see. Now, maybe they have to wait a few hours, and that's the reality of the healthcare system, and I'm okay with that. Um, I'm not okay with parents feeling like they can't come and utilize the resource that they pay for. Yeah, and I think I'm, there's probably similar pressure in the adult world in terms of... Um it's very easy to jump on patients to kind of assume that they have easy access to other resources or that they're, yeah. they're there inappropriately when, when often that's not the case. And so in the emergency department these days, do you find that um, volume is an issue to the point where you're having trouble kind of spending this time educating uh, patients and parents? Yeah, 100%. We've, I think at our site specifically, we've been playing a bit of a catch-up game for the last five years. Um, you know, we opened, what, about seven years ago, and our volumes have skyrocketed. So we're, our volumes increased by 10 to 15% per year, which if I was in any business on the planet, and I was recently meeting with some really great um, uh, foundation donors from Walmart and said, look, if I could tell you guys that your business would increase by 10 to 15% per year, year after year after year, how would you feel about that? And they'd be like, oh yeah, that'd be great. What a great business model, except it's not a business and we're always playing catch up with the volumes. And so what we've found is that we're often in short supply, physical space, physician you know, resource, uh, and then non-physician person resources, so our nurses and allied health uh, folks. So we have found, especially over the winter months, that we're often shorter for time having to see more patients and cut that timeline down. But what I try and do is find efficiencies that don't interfere with the time I need to spend with families in that last couple minutes. And so for me, that's like the golden couple minutes is, you know, if I can speed up the beginning of my interaction, if I can be a bit more efficient with my history taking, my physical, how the department flows in terms of how much walking I have to do in the department that's actually no value added, where forms are, all of those things that play into wasted physician time. Um, so as not to cut into the last couple minutes of their visit with me. For me, that's like the golden period of time. And... Uh, the other thing that I've discovered, and there's a body of evidence that supports this, is that sitting down with families is way more valuable for them than not sitting down. And, and research bears this out that the perception of time spent by a physician increases when you sit down, even if you spend the exact same amount of time, uh, as well as patient satisfaction for what that's worth and, and patient preference. So some of those little things that we could do that don't actually necessarily uh, cost us more time, but is value added to the family, or take a look at the bigger picture. What do you spend your time doing as a physician in, the, in any given department? Uh, if you're spending a lot of time running around chasing charts or running around doing this, there's no value added to that. If the system can be improved in some sort of way to minimize that, which sometimes it can't just because of the realities of the way that things are. Uh, but we've worked hard to try and do that and are still working hard on some process improvements to try and streamline that so we're not paying physicians, nurses, allied health folk to walk. You get your steps in when you go home. You know, it's uh, there's more value added to have people do what they're trained for. So, yeah. Yeah, that's all. 
And I know you're. I know you have somewhere to be uh, very shortly. But I wonder if you if you have a few more minutes. Probably uh, an excellent little uh, pearl for people that are in training or often they'll see pediatric patients would be kind of an approach to dehydration in terms of how you kind of uh, risk stratify patients and how you approach them in terms of anti-nauseants and IV yep. versus oral. Yeah. So that's a, it's a good question. And there's been a lot of flux in this over the last few years in terms of. Uh, less around the sort of hydration assessment, which we can talk about separately, and in terms of the ga- kids with gastro and when do we use anti-nauseants. I think the hydration thing, uh, the way that I see hydration is, is more how I see a lot of things nowadays, which is that it's, there's no one piece that is the whole of the puzzle that's the whole picture. Um, you know, hydration uh, for me is, is so multimodal and there's no one great thing. I mean, the ideal thing would be urine output. And so ideally people would come in and tell you how many mils per kilogram they've been peeing in the last several hours and you could use that to, to sort of come up with a number as to how dehydrated they are. Obviously that doesn't happen and especially when kids have gastro, we never really know how much of the diapers filled with stool versus urine. And so urine output notoriously is, uh, especially in kids with gastro, is, in, is not the best marker. Um, but a lot of the other things that we look at in terms of like heart rate, mucous membranes, fontanelle if it's still open, what's the cap refill, pulses, sort of throw that all together. And again, not one of those things is going to be that great. You know, my little guy had a fever the other day and his cap refill was four seconds. He wasn't dehydrated. He was just shut down peripherally because his temperature was going up. Um, and so, you know, everything within the context of, of the clinical situation, certainly if someone's heart rate's up and, you know, their dry mucous membranes and they've got cap refill that's elevated and, and there's a good history, well, then you put it together. The question around antiemetics has been a good one, and there's been a lot of flux in this. And, and since we started using Ondansetron over a decade ago uh, as an anti-nauseant for kids with gastro, we've seen huge changes in, in uh, what we do with vomiting kids in the emergency department. And there's been an, uh, also um, an emergence of evidence to say what we're doing correctly and maybe what we're not doing correctly. Um, and so when Ondansetron came out, the original systematic reviews, and this is a few years ago, showed number needed to treat, for those of you who are nerdy and, and know about those such things, number needed to treat of five to prevent uh, an IV and, and around 15 to prevent a hospitalization, which is pretty great. great. Like that's yeah, fantastic. Fantastic NNT. So you think, oh my goodness, like I should, you know, we should use this exclusively. Um, and then there was a really good study by Friedman a couple of years ago looking at the trends in Ondansetron use over a decade, over the last decade, and the rates of IV um, use and hospitalization. And what they found is that the rates of Ondansetron use in kids with gastro went from effectively zero to over 40%, which is not surprising. Um, but the rates of IV and the rates of hospitalization were unchanged during that time frame. Now, it's an observational retrospective study, so you, you got to take it with a grain of salt. There's no causation that we're going to glean out of this. Uh, but looking at that, I, I have to make some assumptions, uh, which is, you know, maybe we're using this in kids that, that wouldn't have been part of those original studies because we're not seeing the, you know, a significant decrease in the, the, in the outcome measures. Um, and so, you know, what are we doing? And, and what's interesting, too, is they found a few other things, which was most kids that got an IV did not get a dose of Ondansetron which for me are those kids that probably should get a dose of Ondansetron. And so what we kind of worry about, and this is now there's a bit of a backlash uh, against routinely using Ondansetron for all these kids, is that kids that come in that, you know, historically, like the kids that come in that are mildly dehydrated and vomiting a little bit don't need Ondansetron. If we give them Ondansetron, that's probably not what they need. They probably wouldn't have been included in the original studies. Um, What they need is oral rehydration therapy, low and slow, get the fluid in, send them home if that works. 
kids in the moderate category where they are moderately dehydrated, uh, those kids and, and are persistently vomiting. So it's not an issue that they're in pain because they've got mouth ulcers. It's not an issue that they've got increased stool output, that it's actually a vomiting is what's keeping them from taking a drop of, of fluid. Those are the kids that need on Dancetron if they're clinically stable, and then if that fails, IV. And then, of course, anybody in the severe category gets an IV. And I think what this study highlights is that we are probably overusing and generalizing the research from Ondansetron in moderate kids and saying anybody that vomited in the last six months comes into eMERGE, hey, I sprained my ankle, but I vomited like you know in March. Here's some Ondansetron. I think we're overusing it. Yeah. Uh, and so I encourage people to, and it sounds painful to get people to do oral rehydration, but I encourage people to first ask the question, how much vomiting has there been? And if there's not been vomiting in the last hour, or two, or it's not been multiple times every time the child tries a small amount, that child may actually benefit more from oral rehydration. And certainly the kid that comes in and, you know, asks the question, when did you last vomit? And the parents say, you know, point to the floor in the emergency room and say, well, there it is. It was five minutes ago. Um, you know, like the kids that are vomiting, you know, with any small amount of fluid orally that have vomited a few times in the last hour, those are kids maybe you want to try on dance trauma. And I think that's if we just refocus who we're using it for and not generalize it to all kids. Um, and that's, that's some evolving evidence. And, and I encourage people to look at the research and, and draw their own conclusions around this stuff. Um, I also encourage people not to just blanket use on Danstron for anybody that's vomited. And what age do groups do start using on Danstron? So it's more, it's less about age and it's more about weight. Um, but certainly, you know, we've used it like one year and older. But the original studies was eight kilos, eight to fifteen kilos, fifteen to thirty kilos, and over thirty kilos uh, with using two, four, and eight milligrams uh, respectively for those groups. Less than eight kilos, and you know, there's less clinical experience with it in younger kids, and and some of us will use it down to I think around six months. But yeah, uh, but then at that point, you have to be, you may have to go to weight-based dosing as opposed to standard dosing, because if they're less than eight kilos, clearly you can't use that the dose for eighteen to 15, eight to fifteen kilos. So yeah. And, uh, and before we let you go, um, for those of us in the adult world uh, that don't see a lot of kids, is there any specific resource that you suggest as, a, as kind of a, a way to kind of brush up periodically when it comes yeah. to pediatric emerging? Yeah, it's so, a hard question. But. Yeah, it's kind of a hard question. I, I, there certainly are position statements that are... Um, so I'd say, oh, there's, there's position statements. And then you say that and everybody sort of tunes out. Uh, because I know it goes through my mind when somebody says, oh, there's a position statement. It's like, okay, so how many, like, how many volumes do I have to read to find the three nuggets? But that's often where you'll find some good information. But, you know, I think easier to digest. And one of the ways that I, I really start to, have started to digest more information is through FORMED, like through free open access medical education. Find three podcasts that you like, make one of them pediatric, make the other two general emerge, but find a pediatric podcast, emerge podcast that you like the voices of the people that are talking and they seem to have pretty decent content and there's some banter back and forth. So it's not just one person pontificating. It's a couple people discussing. Uh, and follow it and you know you listen to a Peds Emerge podcast even once every week or two you're, over a year you're going to actually hit most of the topics and papers that have come out yeah that's excellent advice. I really I really think that's it. currently that's probably the best way to stay on top of things yeah definitely great well thank you so much for your time we'll definitely be hitting you up again Wow, that was a really good review thanks to Anthony and Brendan for this informative review on pediatric pearls that are really practical. Let's summarize some of the key points for everyone so that they can take these home with them. Or actually, to work with them. Number one, parents' definitions of emergency may differ from your definition of emergency as a healthcare provider. 
it's imperative to get an understanding of what the patients are most fearful of and specifically address those concerns in order to provide great patient care. Number two, emphasize with your child's family the expected course of the illness so they know what they're expecting when they go home and so they don't get worried and come back. But also make sure they know what to come back for. This will help alleviate some of the fear and articulate what we as clinicians get worried about. And number three, at the time of discharge, it is critical to review with parents that the four horsemen, as Dr. Krakow names them, referring to the four reasons for patients to return to the emergency department. These four things are hydration, mentation, respiration, and other concerns. Also remember when it comes to the interaction with parents and caregivers, that we know sitting down with a family adds an immense value to the interaction. Research shows that although you spend the same amount of time with the patient, when you sit down, the perception of time is much increased from the patient's point of view. And then the other thing I want you to remember is that when it comes to assessing dehydration in the pediatric patient, a good rule of thumb is that when a child's urine output is about half the normal or expected volume, that that's when you should start getting worried. Also, there's a progressive trend of less and less urine over a couple of days. That's also an important marker. Urine, after all, is liquid gold. And then finally, when it comes to treatment of vomiting in the emergency department from gastroenteritis, ondansetron is a great medication choice to help with acute symptoms. Systematic reviews have shown that the number needed to treat to prevent an IV was 5, and number needed to treat for hospitalization was 15. These are phenomenal numbers. Remember to be aware of a generalization and overuse of ondansetron in children. And just like Anthony says, when it comes to keeping up with the ever-changing wealth of information out there, you should probably check out a couple of FOMED sites. My favorite is Don't Forget the Bubbles for some resources that you can use. So thank you again to Anthony Crocro for being a guest on this podcast and Brendan Trotter for interviewing him. We hope you leave here with at least one pearl that you can go and apply in the next shift that you have. T-Chan out. Welcome to Residence Corner, where you will learn about some of the awesome work that our McMaster Emerge residents have been up to. Welcome everyone, I am your host, Joanna, and today we have a great resident bite for you. Have you ever been at work in the emergency department and looked at your patient tracker and noticed that more than 50% of your patients are geriatric patients? Well, I can probably say that for every shift that I've worked in in the last month. With the aging baby boomers, Emergency physicians are treating more and more patients over the age of 65. I certainly wish I had a little bit more training in treating these patients, their unique medical conditions, and considering the pathophysiology of disease. I have the pleasure of introducing Dr. Chris Kapak, a resident colleague of mine, to talk to us about his fellowship in geriatric medicine. Chris, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me, Joe. As Joanne said, uh, my name is Chris, and I'm a PGY4 uh, in emergency medicine uh, at McMaster University, and I am currently doing uh, a one-year fellowship in geriatric emergency medicine 
at the University of Toronto. That's great to hear. And as far as I know, you're about halfway done now. But Chris, tell us a little bit about why you chose to do your fellowship in geriatric medicine. Did you always know you wanted to subspecialize in geriatric emergency medicine? So perfect question off the start. When I was going through my PGY1 and PGY2, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I just knew that I wanted to do something different and a fellowship that I could complete in one year. And there are lots of brilliant people out there doing education fellowships, ultrasound, intensive care. But I wanted something that would make me stand out and something that I could find that would really change how I practice. And lo and behold, actually our Department of Emergency Medicine here at McMaster kind of gave me the answer by having one of the world's top geriatric emergency doctors, Dr. Don Malady from the University of Toronto, come and give our grand rounds. And after listening to Don talk and describe the silver tsunami of geriatric patients in the emergency department, uh, it really clicked. Looking at these patients, these are not just simple cough and colds, low back pains. These are the most complex patients you have in your department outside of your polysystem traumas. And that was a, a really big draw for me, is I wanted to see patients that were not simple, that made you think, and you had to put your detective hat on to try and figure out what was going on. And lastly, the fact that these patients were the ones where you could make the biggest difference. Getting a patient to mobilize again, to breathe normally again, can literally change their entire quality of life. And it's not just for the patients, but also their families. Giving a family respite, having a patient become more mobile, more independent, uh, achieving more IADLs or ADLs, literally can take the stress off a family and, you know, bring people some actual happiness again. It certainly sounds like very meaningful work, and I truly mean that. I'm also happy that regional rounds uh, do have an impact on residents uh, in terms of the topic that we present and the world expertise that we bring in here at McMaster University. Now, for those of us who are unfamiliar with the fellowship, what does the year entail, Chris? Can you tell us a little bit about what do you normally do during this year? Are you only seeing geriatric patients? Are you only working in the emergency room and only seeing these patients? What exactly do you do during the year? So Dr. Malady and the University of Toronto have put together a, a fantastic program. And I really think this is going to be the benchmark for expanding this fellowship across Canada because it's, it's simply amazing. Our year starts out with... Uh, training in, I want to say off-service, but different subspecialties that are important for geriatrics. Uh, my year began working in palliative care medicine, and it was a mix of home call visits uh, and in-hospital palliation. And right off the start, it was something completely different than I was used to in Emerge. I was not trying to make people better. I was just trying to make people comfortable. And that was a big mind shift for me. From there, it went to in-hospital geriatrics, a geriatric clinical pharmacology rotation, which was unbelievable because when you have your patient on 20 medications and everything interacts with everything, it was an eye-opening experience to mm -hmm. see how to actually control meds. Then we have rotations like rehab medicine, we do geriatric physiatry, geriatric uh, psychiatry, geriatric trauma, and then... A large portion of it would be 
seen patients over the age of 75 and over in the emergency departments uh, in Toronto with a geriatric emergency nurse, a PT, a social worker, and a speech-language pathologist. And that was the bulk of the emergency training. The program also gives flexibility is that it allows people to sub-subspecialize in what they like about geriatrics. One of past year fellows actually went on and did a simulation geriatrics emergency medicine fellowship. She combined the two. Um, others have done trauma in geriatrics. So it's a very flexible fellowship where it just tries to get you exposure to all those different aspects of care of the elderly patients that you don't see just working in the eMERGE. Sounds like a very well-rounded year altogether. Um, and is this program offered anywhere else other than UFT at the moment, the fellowship? Right now, uh, the one in Toronto is the only fellowship program in Canada. And uh, every year they allow up to two fellows to join the program. And they have been going now, I believe, for four years coming up. And they have yet to have a single vacancy. That's good to know for our listeners. Now, switching gears maybe a little bit and maybe with a bit of an obvious question, um, why do you think specifically is it important for current and future emergency medicine doctors to incorporate geriatric medicine training in their practice? Geriatrics is just so different when you compare it to things like internal medicine or what we've always come to expect of being, you know, our emergency patient being, you know, the 45-year-old man with chest pain. There is just so much more that you have to consider when even trying to send someone home. Do they have a caregiver at home? Do they have support workers? Do they need physio? Is there actually anybody else in the home? Can they get their own medications? Can they be mobile enough to actually feed themselves? You don't have to worry about that with the majority of your patients outside of the pediatric population just on a discharge. But then you have to think about just how frail or how many comorbidities a patient can have without having a geriatric lens to really see how these patients flow through the system. It's very easy to not appreciate how they can get lost, how harm can be done, or how these patients just bounce right back to the department. Well, what you've told us so far are already very important key learning points for our listeners uh, to take home when next time they see um, a patient that falls into that geriatric population age group. For learners like myself, medical students, residents, or even staff for that matter who don't have a formal geriatric uh, training in their residency program or their education uh, program in general, what do you think are some resources that one can turn to when needed uh, to learn more about how to best deal with patients in this population group? Two of the best resources uh, I can give to you, Joe, are uh, two websites. One is actually run by Dr. Don Malady, the head of geriatric emergency medicine at Mount Sinai and the director of the fellowship program. It's called jerry-em.com, that's G-E-R-I-E-M.com. And this is literally a website based around teaching residents, nurses, uh, physicians on how to approach problems with geriatrics or issues with geriatric patients in the emergency department. And it's all about giving you a better understanding on how to manage these patients and provide proper care. 
And that's probably the number one resource I can give. The second is actually a service that's provided in Ontario, but they do have free online seminars every month. And it's called jerrymedrisk.com. It's all one word, G-E-R-I-M-E-D-R-I-S-K.com. And this is actually the only geriatric clinical pharmacology service in all of Canada. And it's a group of physicians, a clinical pharmacologist and geriatrician, a psychiatrist, a pharmacist, uh, and a nurse. And they basically field consults and questions about medication issues in geriatric patients. And with their monthly seminars, they try to reach out and do teaching to uh, the majority of uh, healthcare providers in Canada or around the world about common issues around medications that could affect delirium in your population or impair cognitive function or just common interactions you might even see. Their, their big issue this past year was marijuana and how that actually interacts with the plethora of medications a geriatric patient could be on. Yeah, something that probably affects all age groups, but that's for another topic and another podcast. Well, Chris, thank you so much for being here. Certainly learned a lot about the fellowship year and resources and the importance of learning about geriatric medicine and incorporating that specifically in the emergency room. Thank you for being here. Thanks, Joe. This is Residence Corner Bite, and see you all next time. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Mac Emerge podcast. We hope that this brings you new information and helps you up your game so you can deliver better patient care to our region. Remember, we are always looking for new talent and expertise to feature in our podcast. So if you're interested, please feel free to contact us at our email at macemergepodcast at gmail.com. We're also looking to improve your experience, so please submit your feedback as well. Again, thanks for listening. Let's all stay connected. Back and merge out!